Hi there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. No matter how many times I do this intro, I still never am sure what I'm going to say at the very start. So this one is started just like that. Welcome to this week's episode. It's episode 9, season 2, and it is with a world champion. And before I talk about the guest, let me just talk a little bit about the last week and all of that stuff that I like to do from time to time. So the episode we released last Friday was with Jim Breen and some of the stuff I got back from folks that have listened to it have come up with words like powerful, inspiring, meaningful, things like that. All good stuff, really nice to hear and thanks to Jim for his time and thanks for his help promoting it. Uh, it's been one of the most listened to, certainly obviously in the last few months but overall and it's definitely one of the ones that i enjoyed listening back to myself the most in the week it's grown and grown probably because of the weekend that was and for those in ireland and the uk i think it was a holiday in both and that would have probably had people less connecting into podcasts and more out enjoying themselves although you can do the the two at the same time it seemed to be a steady slow burner and that is great so again thanks for that one jim and if you haven't checked it out as always go back and have a listen it's there on monday i released the fourth episode of one minute monday the fourth little one minute clip generally tie it back to something that came out of an episode that just went past like the one with Jim but not always some some other ones coming up that uh, are from episode in the past or just general stuff that I do myself around productivity so I'm going to share the next one on Monday obviously please keep checking that out it's going down really well and I'm hoping to actually get a few potential one minute Monday contributors to do their own one minute Monday tips in the future for those of you that subscribe to the newsletter i would have sent out email during the week around this whole gdpr which is coming into effect on the 25th of may which is to protect your privacy and data protection all good stuff like that if you haven't heard about it it's mainly a european initiative if you're listening outside of europe you may not have but it's kind of a big deal and i've sent out the the letter the email even to everybody to opt in if they want to continue getting that newsletter if not you can unsubscribe there and uh, i'll take you off the list and i think based on the rules for those of folks that don't do anything with that email i will unsubscribe them on the 25th probably a bulk unsubscribe there if you are listening if you have that email if it's probably going to spam or one of those folders check it out i'll be sending a few more reminders it'll be on the website there's a link in the show notes as well so maybe just check that out and if you do want to continue getting that once a week email typically with all the stuff that's going on please update your subscription details there which would be great Okay, and I've also talked about other stuff that I like to do in the near future. The 864 podcast that I keep talking about, I'm coming very close to identifying a date for releasing that. It's the first or second week of June for sure. I'm going to spend a couple of days over the next uh, week or two, probably at weekends, to edit a number of those episodes and just try and figure out how I'm going to release them. As I said, they're 15 minutes long. I have some really cool guests lined up already recorded ready to go and we'll probably release a number of shows over the course of a few days and see how that goes and see what the reaction is like 
and I'm yeah definitely excited about it so that should be good just in relation to the last five six seven episodes the numbers have doubled in size as you might have seen some of the posts I put out we were again doing well in the iTunes charts which is great it just means that we're getting into the ears of more people just really thanks to you for listening for coming back and from probably most importantly sharing it in your own networks doing likes or retweets or leaving comments or putting a share out on on LinkedIn or Facebook all of that stuff makes a huge difference it helps me extend the reach of the podcast it means some of your friends and family and colleagues get to hear some of the really good episodes that we're putting out just like the one with Jim Breen that could absolutely make a difference in somebody's day or something going on in somebody's head that could unlock something for them lots of some things but very beneficial if you just take a few minutes to do that to to rate it to subscribe on itunes help it go up further to do anything you can just to help promote it i'm doing this obviously as a one-man band and uh, trying to figure out the socials and how to extend the reach of it is a learning all the time but it's a really cool one and yeah i think it's all down to you guys for helping me extend it so that's the shout out for getting extra listeners and i think i've covered all the other stuff that i've bulleted here that i rarely go into much detail on and i know i'm rambling again so so this week's episode is with olive Lochnan, who is the 2009 world champion for the 20 kilometer walk olive is originally from cork she moved to galway grew up there went to school there went to university there then moved back to cork in her early 20s it was a very interesting conversation. We had it about oh, two months ago. And as somebody that's massively into sport, into all types of athletics, running, cycling, it's sport related and obviously sports psychology as well. It's massively interested in. It was fascinating to talk to somebody that had literally walked the walk. Sorry about that. But she really did. She, from a relatively young age, started to develop a huge talent for athletics initially cross country then started into the walk a lot of good influencers along the way started to take things more seriously and then was in a circle of people i suppose that were high achievers goal setters and it became almost the norm for success and olympics and events like that to come her way lots of really good stuff in it i urge you to maybe take out a pen and paper and write some notes it's a lot about goal setting, a lot about analytics, and absolutely a lot about determination, guts, and just knowing that your day is going to come if you keep putting the grind in. Fascinating and great to talk to somebody that's done such a, an amazing achievement like a World Championship gold medal. So enjoy the episode with Olive Lochnan, and I hope you have a great weekend and a great week ahead. Thanks so much. Good luck. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the 1% Better podcast and in this one I am delighted to introduce Olive Lochnan. Olive, welcome to the show. Thanks very much Rob, thank you. Thanks for uh, coming on and I'm looking forward to, to chatting to you about your about your career and some things I suppose you've learned along the way that uh, that might be beneficial to, to share. I did a bit of research and obviously you've multiple Olympics under your belt, six world championships, a world champion in uh, the 20k walk uh, in Berlin and 
Athlete of the Year in 2009. And recently, I think I saw you got a Hall of Fame winner at the Southside and District Sports Awards. That's um, probably right up there, is it? Yeah, I guess um, I'd say I was one of the younger recipients. It was certainly uh, a pleasant surprise to get around Christmas time there to to hear that I'd been uh, selected. A Hall of Fame winner, so that's that's really nice to to get. You're you're originally from Cork, but you moved to Galway when you were quite young. Yeah, so I was born when I was four. We lived in Douglas until I was four. Actually, I was born in born in Cork here, and then I spent my school years and I did my degree in Galway, and then I met Cork man and came back to Cork in around uh, 1999, 2000. Um, so I've been here since. So I'm uh, longer in Cork now than I than I spent out of Cork. So uh, I am. You're back for good at, at this point. So um, I went to actually I went to university in Galway myself from I think it was two thousand and sorry ninety six to two thousand maybe. And okay, so uh, we must have passed each other in the corridors. So. On the concourse or probably in the library uh, or not maybe <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah, I definitely like to get to to your journey in college and and training and that question. I like to ask folks at the start of nearly all of these episodes is when they think back to when they were extremely young. And and maybe even what their earliest memory was. What what comes up when you you think of maybe some of your earliest memories? Well, I I guess I suppose I in terms of sport I wasn't uh, I wasn't a standout achiever or anything as a small child, but I was very determined. I was one of a large family, so I guess I remember my brother, who's uh, one of my earliest memories is is be is feeding my brother. Um, I'd say I was very young at the time. Uh, only about I'd say only about two and a half or three um, and then in terms of significant events I can remember the boycott of the Moscow Olympics wow. um, so don't really remember the Irish performances of the boycott I remember and mm. obviously it was a difficult time politically um, so it would have been the time around the time of the hunger strike so all of those things are, are kind of points that I remember right? Uh, in terms of national events yeah and it's funny that it's an Olympics that would stand out was 1980 that was 1980 yeah yeah it was 1980 yeah okay. yeah yeah so I remember yeah vaguely remembering the boycotts and asking what the boycotts were about because I did understand the Olympics at four right um, but wondering what the boycotts were about hmm and even from those early years when you were starting to form and remember things was there was sport on the horizon or was or what did you want to be I suppose from those early stages when you were growing growing up um I think I wanted to be none at one stage um yeah so (laughs) had a lot of um various different things like any child I guess um you know it just things life uh life moves about and stuff um so sports was I suppose more about friends and being having fun than anything and wasn't really involved in formal sports as a young child because I grew up in Ireland in the 80s and mm. um, I know certainly P, uh, you know, was certainly not something that was available to us in, in school when I was growing up. And um, I think the boys got to kick a ball and the girls got to do some knitting at the same time. So uh, that was Galway. <laughs> so, uh, right. 
Yeah, so, no, I mean, obviously, I had a wonderful national school, but certainly, I suppose, sport wasn't something I was really taught about her physical activity. But then, I guess, there wasn't the same need to think about it either, because children were just more naturally active, and it wasn't about, you know, formal activity, because kids just were out and about more, you know. Mm. I was never one of those kids that watched television, though. So you, you I'm were, thinking that even yeah. if I, I was, and so I'm thinking even if I was, you know, even I, if I had grown up in a, in an age of iPods and iPads and <laughs> um, technology, that I probably would still have been just an active child. Right, and you you mentioned your brothers. I, I interviewed a, a lady last season in this. Um, Lieutenant Roberta O'Brien, she was one of the first, the first female in the Irish Navy, and she was from Tipperary. And mentioned when she was growing up, she had older brothers, and uh, would have played hurling and football with them. And she was on the first female on the boys' football team when she was twelve in, in secondary school. So they were a big influence. Were your brothers influential to you, or were they were they younger, or older, or a mix? In terms of sport, no, not really. I'm the oldest of seven. Okay, so um. Yeah, we were steps of the stairs and uh, my, I suppose some of my family are nearly equally split in that some of us were really sporty. Hmm. And uh, then, but the the sporty brothers came later. I mean, we yeah, we were great bodies and stuff in terms of, you know, and I've heard Reed Corkery talk about playing with the boys team. But I, at one point I did try to go on strike and, and play football with the boys. Instead of the knitting, but I, I got a rap on the knuckles for that. So no, I, I wasn't. Um, I just loved, I suppose, being outside and being out and about. And my family are a huge influence on me and, and continue to be so. And, and you know, we, we're, we're quite close. Um, my uh, One of my brothers has severe autism and he came third in the family. So I guess that, you know, changes things a bit within the family as well. Right. Okay, that definitely would change it. When did you start maybe developing a bit of a a flair for for athletics? So I always wanted to do athletics, but the opportunity didn't really present itself till I went to secondary school. So okay. that was when I was about twelve, and um, I just loved athletics then. Uh, now that's not to say there weren't some really good people, and you know I talk about about not having the opportunity to to play sport in my national school but then one of the teachers in the school started Camogie outside of school for, for us so certainly there's a lot of inspirational people along the way and people who just you know wanted to do the right thing and, and were very supportive and I always think about people who made a difference in my in you know my life in general mm-hmm. but the impact that one person can have can be so great sure. you know yeah, um, yeah no, that's a really big thing that's why like I know it's so hard and I know myself, life is so busy, um, but I wouldn't have, you know, had the opportunities I had were it not for volunteers. And, you know, you really, you don't have to change the world. You can just make a difference to a few people like it. And certainly I, I had good people around me. So I did lots of things. I was in Girl Guides. I was in Scouts on the Girl Guides. We're no longer. Um, so, yeah, I was an outdoorsy type child. All right. So I was. And I would have thought nothing of, you know, cycling uh, Loch Ray was about 10 kilometres from us so I would have thought nothing of cycling in and out to Loch Ray, maybe twice in one day so I mm. guess I, I had a bit of a cardio base without trying to create And do you remember in those early years as you were starting to maybe dabble in different events or different sports 
when when the walk started to become something you thought you could actually go after or um, was it later on yeah no it, it was later um i used to do cross country i used mm. to do anything that i could be part of a team really right um and i loved that camaraderie and stuff and just i suppose in terms of i loved technical events but most of the technical events are kind of power events now i'm sure i'm not like a strong person as in uh, physically I'm a slight person mm-hmm. um, and I certainly was as an athlete very very slight right. so I wouldn't have been cut out for the power events power technical events uh, physically but I was so I just liked to walk because it was endurance based and it was technical so but I was about I'd say I was about 15 or 16 and I really wasn't taking it that seriously it was just part of you know, representing the club, hmm. um, um, Lockery Athletic Club was my athletic club. And it was just part of representing the club and getting a few points, you know, in competitions where you had to cover all the events and didn't really take it seriously. So sport was more about the fun and the crack. And um, But then when I did start to take it seriously, I met again another volunteer, um, uh, Michael Lane, and, and he said, you know, you could actually... You should give this a go, like, mm. and so I did. And again, as I say, someone who made a big had a big impact on me, Michael. And so that was effectively like a turning point. He could spot some some raw talent in there. Was there anything specific he he identified in you? I guess I suppose I had a bit of an eye of the tiger. You know, <laughs> um, I was always so determined, and it didn't really matter what I did. And, and you know, I suppose that's something that that's a characteristic and a personal trait sure. that, that you'll always have yeah. um so i guess he saw that and i was technically pretty pretty good as well um so you know for sports you you do need some underlying ability and some level of physical talent but it, it's as much about the mental tenacity and the ability to tough things through and that was a really big thing for me hmm. and the ability to you know set big goals and and even though you might be a long way away from them to work towards them. Hmm. I'm very interested in, in, in goals. I do a lot of goal setting myself in my job and just even doing this sort of stuff is kind of a goal. When you talk about mental toughness or that tenacity or that eye of the tiger, where do you think that came from? I don't know. I mean, I just can never remember a time when I wasn't determined um, in pretty much everything I do sometimes I wish I could switch it off you know <laughs> like yeah. be a lot more relaxed <laughs> uh, we'll get to meditation in um, a few minutes don't worry but uh <laughs> yeah so I always set really high standards for myself um mm. and uh and that's as I say I don't ever remember like not being like that I was a bit late learning to cycle there weren't that many bikes around the place and I remember my granddad uh my mom's father bringing over a bike that had probably been her bike to the house mm. um and he brought it over like whatever late afternoon and by that evening i was able to cycle you know mm. it was just like i'm not going to stop there was no stabilizers i'm sure i was about seven at the time so um there was no stabilizers there was a lot of pain there was a lot of falls but that didn't matter you know i was determined to learn to cycle that evening um i couldn't wait till the morning um so you know there's there's little bits like that stick out of my head where I just want to, to you know get the most out of myself and obviously it hasn't always worked out and I'm mm. trying to think now of anything that I'm willing to talk about but 
Cotton always worked out, but it was always about getting the most out of myself. Um, it was the same in college, you know. Of course, I'd love to have been top of the class, but I wasn't. But I knew I couldn't have done any more. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was fine too, you know. It was just knowing that that I left nothing behind. Or as when I was training, I, as I used to say, competing in sports, that I left nothing on the road. Yeah. Um, and that yeah. I gave myself every chance, you know. Mm. A big thing as well, I guess, was like, you know, you can't control everything, but it was about controlling what I could control and and influencing what I could influence and, and just accepting them, the things that I couldn't yeah, change like, or influence. No, that's, that's cool. And a lot of the stuff you're talking about there, to me, sounds like stuff I would have learned or you hear more and more in sports, psychology and just psychology in general or really pushing yourself. Were those characteristics or, or that kind of mantra being taught or trained to you in your early training days or were, were those like words where you were saying leaving stuff on the road did you have that kind of mindset from those stages or were you as clear on your objectives back then or did that come as you just got more and more training I don't know I mean I know to be honest I just don't remember a time when I wasn't right. like that mm. um and I worked really you know I did a lot of work with sports psychology over the years the sports psychologist Camus Kennedy mm-hmm. um, based here in Cork I worked a lot with him and he was really good to me and so that was one of his earlier clients and it was just wonderful that we you know I couldn't have done it without him and, and that was a big thing um, and I would have used other sports psychologists when I was away on training camps and stuff sure. um, but for me sports psychology was about I suppose taking a step back and relaxing and learning to go with the flow that was my greatest challenge mentally mm. when I was competing mm. and possibly still is you know <laughs> and you mentioned the the mental toughness or or even maybe w- would you consider yourself a risk taker not really no uh calculation risk you know um uh, no I'm not a big risk taker but okay. uh, was there I'm a... waking up I think a lot <laughs> yeah i definitely want to get into analytics there because I, I know you work with the cso so i'm interested in is there an analytical is it an analytical type role you have yeah i'm a statistician oh. so yeah i guess <laughs> yeah i like my numbers i like that that said my role at the moment is is as a crime statistician so it's you know the numbers are given to me it's, it's trying to work with them and stuff so yeah, I, I'm I'm very analytical. I would have at school, I would have been a math, accountancy, those types of subjects would have been my best subjects. Um, but then I appreciate the, you know, that not everybody speaks numbers. So sometimes it's it's about being able to communicate these analytics and and make them meaningful for people. I want to come back to that in in a little bit, but just to go back, maybe latter stages of secondary school before you went to university, was there a, a standout moment where you kind of stepped over the line to said, "There's a breakthrough here. I actually have something that could go big with this." Does something, anything stand out when you think of that? A little bit. I mean, I was athlete of the year in my last year in in school, so um, in my leading third year, I think that was a bit of a it meant a lot to me at the time and it made me think a little bit, oh gosh, you know, this is a possibility here. But so that that was one aspect of it. Um, but I guess if I hadn't been given the encouragement to, to train a bit harder and 
take it more seriously, that might not have been enough. Because obviously when you go to college, you, it's a change of lifestyle and, you know, you, you kind of have choices to make. Mm-hmm. But I, the people I was friends with in college, I was quite a, quite a quiet um, individual, even though I'm quite outgoing as a person. But college was a bit of a shock to the system. I was 17 mm-hmm. um, and I was, you know, I suppose from, uh, yeah, I was definitely shocked at the system. I liked my course and everything, but I wasn't used to the the hustle and bustle of it all. And there's a lot more hustle and bustle now than there was then. But mm. so I guess I joined the athletic club. So it was a way to meet people. And I suppose they were the people that became my friends. So there was lots of fun along the way. And I certainly enjoyed college. Um, but because I was with that group of people, it was normal to train. The other thing, too, was, I suppose, by virtue of the fact that, you know, I met the national coach, McAleen was the national coach at the time, and he introduced me to other people. So mm. I became great friends with Deirdre Gallagher, and this was 1996, and she was going to Atlanta, um, and Julian Sullivan, who represented Ireland in, in the Olympics with me on three, two occasions. So... I kind of, the people I surrounded myself with, or the, it's not the people that I surrounded myself with, but people, my friends were all people, you know, it was no big deal to go to the Olympics, you know, this is what you do, you train hard, there is a plan, you follow the plan, you know, this right. is the next natural step. Okay. So it wasn't this, like, it wasn't shrouded in mystery, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense, I suppose, when you start surrounding yourself with people that are on the same path, doing the same things, it, it doesn't maybe make life so much more challenging or the, the, I suppose the sacrifices aren't as maybe as big if, if others around you are doing no, the same? No, they're not. No, they're not. The, yeah, there's two aspects to it. You know, the sacrifices don't seem so big. And um, as I say, it becomes, you know, it becomes the norm. It's it's the standard that, that you're used to. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, there they are two sides to the coin. Hmm. So as you were progressing through that, was there a quest, ever a question in your own mind uh, around your own self-belief or yourself? Was there doubt? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, I wasn't born thinking I was going to go to the Olympics. or. But again, it was, it was kind of back to the analytical side of it. It was like, OK, well, the reality is here if I can, you know, so... Just to explain, the Olympics, you do a qualifying standard. So at the time, it was one hour and 36 minutes for 20 kilometers. So, you know, I was pretty lucky. You were still in college, were you, at this stage? Yeah, so I guess, yeah, I'm kind of fast-forwarding a small bit. I finished college in 96. Um, This is about 2000. Right. Um, So, um, but the logical side of me went, well, okay, if, if I can do, you know, four kilometer reps or five three kilometer reps at race pace when i'm just doing a normal day's training well then i can string it all together and go for another five kilometers in a race situation Mm -hmm. so that that was yeah i didn't go out there going oh yes i'm definitely going to make the olympics it was more of a kind of well if i can do this you know this is the next logical step it was that's why it was about goal setting and about breaking it down. So like you had your long term goal and then you had your medium term goals. Um and then your shorter term goals. And I got confidence from the training I was doing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I was never the 
that was never it wasn't that I sat there totally self-assured but it was a gradual building of confidence through achieving shorter term milestones right yeah sounds like a proper project management approach to it which which would be my background (laughs) as well you kind of uh, the concept of smart goals it's where you're kind of making them specific yeah yeah. was was yeah was that the terminology yeah I was yeah yeah, you're... it was a project, <laughs> like any other, you know, obviously, you know, and, and that maybe takes some of the romanticism out of sport, you know, you see mm. the honour and the glory, but behind it all, you know, it is like any other job, you know, you, you get that you have targets, you have goals, you have milestones, all of the above, yeah. um, and they must be smart, yeah, they must be specific, measurable, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the rest of them. <laughs> time bound and, and realistic, like time so. And realistic, yeah, yeah. I suppose where the little bit of magic comes in is that you can, in sport and and to achieve at a high level, the whole your definition of what realistic is mm. is maybe a little bit different to to somebody else's. You know, you go that little bit that step further, um, and you have the confidence to do that and to, to set those targets for yourself. So I think that might be where that, as I say, a little bit of magic comes in where it's like, oh gosh, yeah, you know, that that I can go further, I can do more. Why stop there? Attitude yeah. that comes in. Yeah, but I definitely think that when you're t- t- training for Olympics or at a top level sport, there is obviously that extra level of talent and ability that, uh, you know, a run-of-the-mill project manager wouldn't just be able to get into the Olympics, I think, <laughs> by putting a smart goal out there. I definitely wasn't anyway. Um, as you were moving up the rankings, I suppose, and becoming more uh, well-known and having better and better results, was there points where you'd find that you'd plateau, maybe? and Oh, definitely, yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I it wasn't... A, um, an upward, you know, I didn't maintain an upward trajectory. Going, yeah. No, 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 no. I definitely plateaued at different points. Mm. Um, yeah, and that that again is where I suppose that tenacity comes in and understanding. But it was about okay, where did I go wrong? Okay, I'm really, really disappointed here. But where did I go wrong? How can I fix it? Mm. What can I do better? Are the changes I can make? You know, I suppose. <laughs> Hey, going back to the project management terminology, like is this a project in crisis? You know, <laughs> um, so yeah, like what do I need to fix here? And um, and very often there were reasons, and most of the time, in my personal case, it was because I trained too hard. You know, and I made that mistake a number of times. Like, um, and some of that was a bit of constant, really, as well. Like, oh, I can go hard, so let's go harder. I'm doing so well, like yeah. when I should have been holding back for races. And you know, in the earlier years, maybe around 2003, four, um, five, maybe, I left some of it on the road. And I had my daughter Emer then in 2006. Okay. Um. Yeah, so that obviously changed things as well, changed my focus and I and relaxed a little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but you were still able to come back and become a world champion, so I probably didn't relax too much. But but when you were sitting there, <laughs> you were you were um, you know, going out for those runs when you should have been holding back a bit. Were you like sneaking out and not telling your your coaches at that stage, no, or no, was it? No, I guess at one point I was training. Um, yeah. 
I didn't recognize and I suppose the coach uh, I was working with at the time, fabulous lady, um, a Mexican lady, her, you know, and they, the system there would have been to train harder and harder, like, you know, right. um, and that just would probably suit someone who was maybe less hard on themselves than I was. But I was just so, you know, if, if I can go this hard, well, won't I be doing even better if I go harder type of person? Um, so I was probably someone who needed to be managed more and pulled in and told, you know, given a target that was 10% uh, lower than what I needed to be doing because I was always going to exceed it anyway, you know. Mm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. As uh, the years went by as well, sports science became more, not just psychology, but the science behind it, the whole nutrition diet mm. how did that develop over the olympic years or the olympics that you've gone through that time and did that have marked impact yeah it did i guess i started listening to the data more so mm. you know if the heart rate was going through the roof well this is really not a good thing and um i used to also take little blood samples when i was training so mm. not unlike i don't know if you'd be familiar with the blood samples that uh, somebody who's diabetes I'm, takes. I'm, I'm actually a type 1 diabetic, so I'm definitely okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> too so familiar with them, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. so those finger prick tests. Yeah. So, right. so I would, Leah, I would be looking to measure the level of lactate in my blood, okay. which is, um, you know, that if you're training hard, that, that's high. So, you know, I would have had targets for different sessions and stuff different training sessions so it was about sticking within those targets the walk was an individual sport but did you still feel that you were very much part of a team was that just the people you were training with kind of created that team mentality or or was an individual sport yeah. really best for you some of it like i like the independence of a team teams and individual sport in one sense but in terms of i had team people around me though as well like yeah. so yeah, I was the one doing the work and I was the only one that could perform on the day, but I couldn't have done it without, you know, coach, I couldn't have done it without, I worked very closely with Dr. Donna Reardon, uh, who's a great support to me, and I've already mentioned Canis. Um, you know, I worked with nutritionists, um, I worked with physios, I worked um, with Mary Glacier initially, and then with Brian O'Connell. Um so without those people, I couldn't have done it. You know, I was so lucky to have people who were so supportive and who bought into the whole thing. And um, and I suppose in one sense, managed me from myself at times. And obviously the closer they got to you and knew your approaches and ways, they probably got better at uh, identifying yeah. when you need to be managed, I suppose. And I haven't even started talking about like my husband and my family, you know, and my home daughter and, and the fact that without their mental support or support in every way, it, it wouldn't have been possible. Was there ever a time after any of the Olympics or, or events where you had set yourself this really BHAG goal? I don't know if you've heard the BHAG one, which is yeah. a big, hairy, audacious one um, on top of our SMART goals that you fell short and you were crestfallen and you felt I can't go on or how did you pick yourself up after some of those oh yeah that happened uh, in 2003 4 5 <laughs> um, I had Emer in 6 and it happened in 7 again so right. <laughs> yeah definitely um, 3 and 4 I trained too hard and just burnt myself out really 
um, in 2005 I had disqualified at World Championships 2006 I had a year and it was fabulous and I missed Europeans this, that year obviously um, but World Championships was in 2007 and I was a lot more relaxed um, but in my struggle to get back fit and I was under a bit of pressure to be honest at the time you know I'd been told that I would wouldn't would have to do so I had Ema on uh, in May uh, the 31st of May and I had a cesarean section right. and I was told that in order to keep my funding I needed to do an Olympic standard before the end of 2006 so I had six months Whoa. to get back to doing an Olympic standard and at that stage the Olympic standard had been caught by about three minutes so that was big pressure right. um, and you know so as you can imagine I, I obviously put on weight during the pregnancy sure. um, which was a healthy thing to do and um, yeah so I was back training after I had him I think within about 10 days that's after wow. uh, having a cesarean so and I was back walking within six weeks so I was back in the pool yeah 10 days after I had her Good Lord. So um, yeah. I checked, like, you know, I, yeah. I got permission, if that's the right word. That would have been very healthy. You know, I would have been swimming until the day before I had her. And, right. you know, it was it was different to somebody who wasn't as fit and healthy as I was. Um, But I worked myself out then in 2007. You know, I just trained too hard, too quickly after having her and, and didn't perform as well as I would have liked in 2007. And I spoke with them. Um, a journalist, um, I spoke with Greg Allen in the mix zone afterwards, and he was like, why, you know, why do you keep doing it? What keeps you motivated, you know? Mm-hmm. And you see, I still believed that I could do what I wanted to do. And sure. I suppose it probably wasn't immediately obvious to the people who are watching and seeing me, you know, finishing 13th, 13th, 17th. Yeah. Um, but in my head, I was kind of looking at him going, but sure, I, I'm only halfway there, you know? Because yeah. um, I did, I suppose, so I did have that deep down self-belief that, yes, I could do this, you know? Um, and that was very important that it didn't matter who else thought about it. You know, I was always that person that surpri- surprised. It would have been a surprise. It would have been a surprise that I made the Olympics in 2000. You know, it would have been a surprise then. You know, I raced really well in 2008 and I, I was the best Irish track and field performer in, mm. in 2008. Yeah. Um, I think outside the boxers, I was probably the best performer. So, again, these are all surprises. They were surprises to other people, but not surprised to me, you know, because I knew I could do it. It just needed for things to work out right for me. Yeah. So the self-belief was there and that's so important. Coming into 2009 then, did certain things go your way for a change as you built up to the World Championships? Yeah, things I calmed down a little bit with the training. Yeah. Um, and I think finishing seventh in Beijing and like in Beijing, I kind of, in a sense, ran out of road. I was the fastest of all the athletes over the second half. I was wow. pulling people in. And I literally ran out of road. Mm. Um, but that's no good. It's it's not a twenty one kilometer race, it's a twenty kilometer race, everyone, you know. Mm. It's that you know, that's just sure. I suppose something that a question that might always be there. But um 
but it made me realize that yes this is definitely on this goal was definitely um something that I could do it gave me a level of confidence you know mm. and um I was in training camp in 2009 before world championships and one of the girls there had finished fourth in the Olympics the previous year um she was a Spanish girl and I was just hammering her every day in training mm. you know and when I went into the race in Berlin in 2009 at one point you know she started to get away from me and I was like hang on a minute now this is just not going to happen this yeah. is my day I'm just this is my medal and I'm going to take it you know right. and, and I was very quietly confident it wasn't the type of talking to everybody in the media or anything like that it was mm. like this is my day. This is not the way it's going to end here. You know, this is, I'm not caught falling off the back here. And I made a very conscious decision. Mm. You know, I'm going to chase this down. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when, you know, I've never been in that situation, but just in some sporting situations or whatever, just some days you know and you have that internal calmness or belief it's impossible to quantify confidence but it seems like in so many instances that uh it has that massive gives you that edge would would that the main difference do you think in in that race or was there any other the calmness was the calmness was probably one of the main differences the just absolute i'm here to do a job i'm ready to do the job you know i won't say nonchalant but almost yeah is here this is my job I'm about to do it that's not to say I wasn't hugely excited by it but sure. I was able to park that you know like I'd gotten over the excitement bit I knew I was in a really good shape mm. now it's time to just perform and it was and, and it was the same before Beijing it was just this absolute calmness about it you know no matter what happened like in Beijing in 2008 when I finished seventh skies poured open like you know mm. um it was really really heavy rain but it didn't matter what happened you know and i was like oh this is meant to be you know i'm i'm able to compete in the rain and then the temperature started us i think it, it averaged 32 degrees when i competed in berlin and i was like oh yes this is the sun this is this is meant to be i'm good in the sun you know so like two yeah. totally different <laughs> weather conditions but i was just like yep yeah, this is I always do well in this weather, you know. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's just that kind of calmness. <laughs> and the calmness then. So going back to the kind of pushing yourself and not being that calm, all of a sudden the calmness came. Was there anything you were doing different? Like meditation is something I talk a lot about on this podcast. And did was that ever something that came into your repertoire or 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 just ability to to center yourself? Anything different? Oh, I wish I could could meditate. <laughs> I'm a, maybe I need to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. You can read and send you links to some of the articles I wrote. It's a, it's a game changer. I've been doing it for about three years, and yeah, it's uh, it's changed me a lot yeah. as well. Um, no, I suppose what I used to do was focus on the process, you know, um, and be aware that it was going to hurt. So I remember speaking um with. Uh, sports psychologist actually before both of those races you know which would have been my really strong performances and you know specifically before Berlin I remember her saying to me she said you know it's going to be really tough tomorrow and I was like yeah I know I'm ready so it was that kind of like Mm. 
acceptance, you know. Um, and there were mantras. So, like, I know when I, in Berlin, I, I got into a medal position around 13 or 14 kilometers. You know, so I was like second slash third. Right. Um, obviously, that the the girl who crossed the line first was subsequently disqualified. Yeah. So in yeah. fact, it was actually first slash second. Yeah. Um, yeah. and like it could have kind of sat back, but I was like, no, 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 I have to get silver now. I have to go for silver, and you know, then it was like I've got to go for gold. Sure. Um, but like I couldn't walk another step once I once I was actually in a middle position. The enormity hit me for a few seconds, and I was like, okay snap out of it you know it, it's time to move on again um and it was like I had this mantra in my last and it was true um I suppose I need it true in a sense but you know my last 5k is always my strongest you know my last 5k is always my strongest and I would have repeated this in my head as I was, as I was going along and there was other kind of psychological tricks that I used like okay I'm just going to go as far as I'm just going to do another 100 meters mm. okay I'm just going to do another you know and it was just yep. this breaking it down and then the 100 meters got too long because I was fairly out of my ear at this stage okay I'm going to go to the next Irish flag or I'm going to you know there was always some yeah, little yeah, target yeah, yeah, so yeah. it was about that mental those mental tricks mm. was visualization popular thing or was it anything you ever had tried to do prior to to a run or to a walk yeah yeah i used to, yeah i kind of did that a bit instinctively it came pretty naturally to me so i used i didn't visualize the result i visualized the process so right. okay i'm gonna walk like this and i'm gonna you know be relaxed and i'm gonna have my shoulders low and then i'm gonna take a drink and i would kind of do the race in my head um but as i say always the process because if i concentrated on the result it kind of in a sense nearly pushed me over the edge and got me over you know it, it removed that calmness with it um so okay this is the process and this is what i'm going to do and i know you know you, you read some of the articles and you know certain People are critical of, of sports people saying, oh, yeah, it's all about the process. But it actually is all about the process. And I can totally understand where, hmm. where these people are coming from. And I know it doesn't sound particularly exciting, but that's the reality, you know. Yeah. Um, we all want to imagine that, you know, your heart is pumping, you know, and all this. And to my internal shame, like someone said to me afterwards, um, you know, one of the journalists in the mix zone asked me, and very kindly never printed it, and I'm actually admitting it all now. But he asked me, you know, was it inspirational passing under the Brandenburg Gate? And I kind of looked behind me and went, oh, there's the Brandenburg Gate. So I had I had done the circuit 10 times. And, yeah. you know, to yeah. me, it was a road. Sure. And, was, you just, and personally, and I suppose it's different, you know, different people, I suppose. Some people probably need to get themselves more hyped up but for me it was about keeping myself calm yeah you you say you laughed about not being able to meditate but a lot of the time what you were doing was kind of meditation in that you were completely in the moment and present as you were doing it so much so you didn't even notice you were going you know through the Brandenburg gates I guess that is a type of meditation in some way believe it or not yeah I never thought about it like that yeah never thought about it like that I saw um the week after I watched the women's marathon race, just to continue on that example, I watched the women's marathon race and, and my husband was with me and he was like, oh, 
this is on television and, mm. and he said oh there's your chorus and I was like no 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 that, that's not my chorus I don't recognise that at all yeah. you know again same thing and it was obviously less remarkable than the Brand- Brandenburg Gate but yeah it was just that whole um, and even during races there were certain people that I sought out and that I listened to and that I heard and I just focused very much on them because you know people say all types of things to support you but I focused on the ones that had most meaning for me and worked best for me hmm. interesting I, I'm conscious of time Olive I know it's a, a Monday evening and you need to to get off in a couple of minutes I just have maybe one or two more quick ones we didn't dwell on the the whole story around the uh seven-year wait to actually get your gold medal which you know which hopefully was worth the wait but certainly probably wasn't the, the best way of going about it one question when you got presented with the medal i know you were uh, presented by seb Cole. did did, right, did, yeah. did you chat with him and had he anything to say to you around that time or was there any nice words or anything that came out of that when you got presented with it oh yeah i mean he i suppose he'd been he'd raced a lot in lockery as an athlete himself so the conversation was mainly around that um yeah so being a lot of people in common actually so um we didn't really go down the political route to be honest um yeah yeah, well, we won't go down it there, but again, congratulations yeah. on, on it. Prefer um, not to be <laughs> Absolutely, no, no point going there. Um, yeah. You talked about being very analytical, and a question I like to ask is around how you make decisions. Uh, I'd be much more gut, intuitively good at deciding things. When when those two come together, do you, do you go with your intuition? Do you go with gut much or do you always look for the facts and let them speak for themselves, the data? Um, it depends on the type of decision that's being made. Um, I suppose in my job, I have to be objective. Um, a lot of a lot of the work I do would be, you know, looking at data and seeing whether it's robust enough um, mm. to be publishable. And I have to stick with facts and figures there. Um, so, yeah, that, that that's what generally guides me in a work situation. Um, and when you were not competing... Not I don't have gut <laughs> feelings as well. But, but um, as, and sometimes you do have to make a call. It's, it's like that split second decision you make if, you know, you have to break suddenly in the car, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, you're in a situation where it's, fight or flight you know yeah um and and sometimes god does take over you know um yeah i i I trust my gut as well but in terms of in a work environment just generally very analytical uh data-driven decisions that i make Mm. um and it is about you know, looking at the facts, trying to find the linkages between different pieces of information and and, um, and a certain element of research, obviously, you know, is, is part of my work as well. But, you know, the facts and looking at best practice internationally. Okay, cool. I'm not making it sound very exciting, <laughs> am I? <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's, all, it's all good. It's interesting. Has your approaches to goal setting changed since, since you retired? And what, you know, what ways do you, do you look at goal setting now in life? 
Um, I'm still a planner, you know. Mm. Um, I'm still a planner. The thing about sport was you had more control over the outcome. You know, it was dependent on you. Um, and I had a great team of people around me. But I had, you know, obviously a greater impact on the outcome. Um, so, you know, now in terms of of other situations I, I'm in, it is about bringing people along with me as well to, you know, so that something becomes a shared goal. Sure. Uh, that, that's a big part of things now. Um, and I guess as I get older and mature, that, that comes more naturally. Hmm. Yeah, I hear you. It's still difficult to uh, relinquish control to um, certain tasks. I, I, I can feel <laughs> as well, you know. <laughs> you can, you can yeah, I am a bit well, of a so. control freak. <laughs> so I am. But, you know, there comes a point when, you know, we all like to think that no nobody can do without us. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. most people, uh, have, you know, have, have skills that are replaceable that's the reality unfortunately um, yeah um, mm. have you have you stayed involved in the sporting world since since you retired what's your level of involvement in it now so i'm on the um high performance committee in sport ireland so that that's a subcommittee of the board of sport ireland and okay. it's, it's responsible for strategic direction of of i suppose the funding and and the way the way uh, structures are put in place um, and it's very different looking at it from that global perspective as an athlete I, I was a recipient of funding um, but it, it's a challenge um, knowing what I do about you know how difficult it is to compete and how difficult it is to get funding mm. um, but again I suppose it, it's that's a good example of where I have to combine sure. gosh and, and 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 cold hard facts, mm, you know. Yeah. So it, it's it's an art, not a science, in a sense. Okay. And you know, I often use the example of myself that I didn't fit the profile. I wasn't, you know, you could have analysed me and and decided that I wasn't worth a punt, and you know, if I hadn't had the opportunity. But at the same time. You do have to be systematic and you do have to put systems in place to give as many people an opportunity as possible. Um, so that's that's what it's about. As I say, a big, big change. Um, but I suppose the, the experience I have myself is, is useful in informing the way things are, are worked out. Yeah, no, I would say it's exactly as you described it, having the experience of being the athlete, but also having that really statistical, data-driven mindset puts you in a mm. unique position mm. i would say to um to be able to give mm. strategic advice there so it sounds like both your careers kind of converge nicely to to, to that role yeah yeah uh, yeah okay yeah i mean it's good i mean a lot of people helped me in a lot of ways in terms of actual coaching it's that's quite difficult at the moment i have very young children and mm. um, and i work full-time so this is my small way of, of giving back for everything that, that was done for me over the years. And I'm sure in time I'll, I'll have, as my own children go a bit older, I, w- I will have a chance to, to get involved in different bits and pieces. If one of your kids turned around and said, Mom, Mommy, I want to do the 20K or 50K walk, I think there's a 50K walk now, is there as a sport? Mm-hmm. Would you uh, mm-hmm. 
would you be very supportive and back them? I mean, this sounds like to... a cliche, but I'm going to support them in whatever they do. You sure, know? sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, and obviously, sport I might not have any interest in sport, and that's fine too. But I will, you know, encourage them and support them. That's a nice way of saying make them be <laughs> active. Sure. Um, because I do think that's very important, um, and that. You know, I am all about bringing them outside and and putting on those wetsuits and you know getting out there, whether no matter what the weather. And some of that's a bit of a selfish motivation, I think, because I spend so much time in the fresh air myself for so long. I myself need to be out and about and in the fresh air. And uh, what better way to do it than splashing in puddles with uh, small children? Yeah, well, it'd be. I think it'd be. It might be selfish, but it's a kind of a good selfish as opposed to selfish and keeping maybe them indoors, as you said at the start, uh, hooked up to all sorts of devices and gadgets. So it's probably um, the better mm. of two evils there, if, if the other one is yeah. evil at all. Yeah. So That's it. I really appreciate the uh, 50 plus minutes we were chatting to this evening, Olive. Um, I really enjoyed getting a little bit of an insight into your world. I hope I wasn't. Uh, my goal is sometimes to ask questions that aren't the standard ones or regurgitating lots of stuff you've gone through before. So um, hopefully we touched on yeah, a few things there. Yeah, it very interesting. So it was an interesting 50 minutes for me too. Cool. Thanks so much. You might send me on some of those links that you spoke about. Around the meditation? Now that I, yeah, now that I know that I've actually done a little bit of it on them <laughs> <laughs> I would say you've, like as I said um, I'd say out of the 50 episodes I did last year I talk about meditation nearly every single one but some some people are hardcore meditators some that were uh, like uh, Olympic swimmers um, from a guy I interviewed in the US and you know they were swimming five four four six hours a day and effectively when they were just staring at the blue line and focused on that that's they're really focused and present and meditation can take many different forms it's not just sitting with your legs crossed and um arming and oming and all of that good stuff it's uh mm. just being able to focus and i think mm. anyone that's high performing and got to a high level like you effectively was so focused and clear on your your objective as you were going through it you were in the moment and i'd say that's as maybe as you stop that it's kind of what do you do to replace it and to kind of keep that that going so so yeah meditation mm. might be a good mm. thing okay all right Olive, look, to thanks. Yeah, nice to talk to you have a, a lovely rest of evening and a good week and uh we'll be in touch okay take care then thanks a lot Bye. good night how was that do you enjoy it i hope so if you did, please like, share and do all that other good stuff that only takes a second on social media but means an awful lot to me as it spreads the reach. You can get the details from the show in the show notes on the website robofthegreen.ie. In there you can share the show out with others. I really just want to touch on three other quick things. One, feedback. I learned so much from it. Without it, I can't improve. Please give me a bit of feedback, positive, negative, constructive. Would you recommend a book? Do you have any other ideas for guests? How about more video? Let me know what you want and I can make it happen. I will try. That's number one. Number two, sharing is caring. This year, I'm making more of an effort to try and expand the reach facebook there's a page and there's a group the one percent better community on facebook is where i really hope new listeners go to share ideas comments in general things that they could help others with that's what it's there for follow me on spreaker.com that's the new host i'm on twitter growing not exponentially at all but slowly so please follow there 
I'm on Instagram. All of these are at Rob of the Green. LinkedIn, Rob O'Donoghue. Get in touch. Would love to hear from you. Number three is about support. So I'm offering a few hours a month pro bono free coaching to those that can't afford it that need some coaching, that want some coaching, if you go to the website, the support page, click on the pro bono link. On the flip side of that, where you guys can support me, go to patreon.com, the Rob of the Green page. You can make a donation there. You can get access to exclusive content, which I'm adding all the time. That would be awesome. Anything you contribute will go back into the show to make it better, make it more than 1% better. Also, there's the option to buy one of those books that were recommended through the website, which will bring you to Amazon, which will get you the normal links, which will get you the books at the normal price. But supposedly, Amazon will give the show a small donation every time a book is purchased or anything for that matter, which is great. So finally, I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. I know it's difficult to make improvements, to push things forward, to get outside your comfort zone. I'm trying to do it all the time. I hope that every listen and every show and every guest that is on gives you something to take away that you could apply, adopt and adapt into your own life to create a new habit, to make something better. Don't overreach. Small improvements. 1% is enough. And thank yourself for making the time to listen to the show. It shows you're interested in learning, improving and getting better, even if it's just 1% at a time. Have a great day and good luck.